Thank you, Jeff. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to look at Ephesians a lot, so it'd be good if you be ready to look at some different passages in Ephesians this morning. <clears throat> we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, as we're considering the subject of racial reconciliation. Hear God's word. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, or the uncircumcision, as the NIV puts it in quotes, because it was a racial slur by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Notice how many times it uses the word one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that Lord, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope to which we've been called and so we pray that we would make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. May we be gentle and humble. May we walk in love as you have loved us. And we pray for, um, Lord, the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in, that we would do that together as the body of Christ and that you would move by the power of your spirit in each of our hearts, that we would bear good fruit. We pray for good things to come uh, from these messages. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So a little history. In 1873, there was a, a committee that was formed from the Foundry Methodist Church that was located down in D.C. at 14th and G Streets, and it began to search for a permanent location to hold annual camp meetings. They wanted a location with sufficient space for thousands of attendees, a supply of clean water, and a shaded location to provide relief from the summer sun. And they also wanted a location to be a day's trip from Washington, D.C., and protection from any sale of liquor for the Methodist were teetotalers. So in June 1873, 267 and a half acres of land was purchased from the widow of, a, of farmer Nathan Cook for $6,636, and the land was given to the newly incorporated Washington Grove Meeting Association. 
Subsequently, before that, a black Methodist camp was founded in 1864 as Emory Grove that predated Washington Grove. Less than a mile separated the two towns and many of the residents of Emory Grove worked for the residents of Washington Grove. But in 1892, there was an incident where an Emory Grove native, Jesse Lancaster, an African-American, ransacked some homes in Washington Grove and this led to the gates of Washington Grove being closed in 1897, thus preventing anyone from walking through Washington Grove. As a result, this uh, severely hindered the ability of the African-American residents in Emory Grove to reach the train stop, which was on the other side of Washington Grove. Sounds like John Ford, doesn't it? <clears throat> Fast forward to 1925. The Washington Grove Camp Association, later the town of Washington Grove, placed restrictive covenants and deeds and leases in order to prevent African-Americans from buying, renting, or leasing land in Washington Grove. This is exemplified in many, one of many deeds. I'm just reading from an article online. You can read this yourself. But one of the deeds in 1925 says that whereas the death rate of persons of African descent is much greater than the death rate of persons of the white races and affects injuriously the health of the town and village communities, and as the permanent locations of persons of African descent in such places as owners or tenants constitutes an irreparable injury to the value and usefulness of real estate in the interest of public health and to prevent irreparable injury injury to the grantor of its successors and assigns and the owners of adjacent real estate, the grantees, their heirs and, and assigns, hereby covenant and agree with the grantor, um, it, its successors and assigns, that they will not sell, convey or rent the premises hereby conveyed, the whole or any part thereof or any structure thereupon to any person of African descent. When I preached on racial reconciliation this summer at Poolsville Baptist, uh, there was one African-American in the congregation who came up to me and he thanked me because he grew up in Washington Grove. And we talked for a while and I asked him, well, how did you, how did you come to Christ? And he shared with me how he had started uh, attending uh, Church of Redeemer in Gaithersburg after his African-American friend kept pleading with him to come to his church. And, he's, and he was telling him, I can't go to that white church. They got a white pastor. And his friend kept telling him, this church is different. And it eventually convinced him. And when he came to the church, he said, wow, they're not all white. And the pastor's preaching the Bible, and that's really good. And he went for a few years before he gave his life to Jesus Christ. I like that testimony. This church is different. Is that our church? Are we different? Do we love all ethnicities? When we talk about racial reconciliation, this is obviously a very touchy subject. We all have our own backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives. And, and when you talk to people, we, there are so many issues to talk about. And I want to get at the heart issue the deeper core issue, I'm concerned about the church and ultimately what will fix the problem. There's lots of things that can, that can help that are proximate secondary solutions, but ultimate real solutions is what we just read in Ephesians chapter 2 of what Jesus Christ has done to bring down the walls of hostility through his death on the cross by his blood. And so... I think, though, that what happens is I think we tend to talk past each other 
uh, as I was listening to Carl Ellis, Dr. Carl Ellis, and the PCA is taking this issue very seriously. I'm I've uh, been our elders in reading this book called Helis Emanuel, and I encourage you to read it. I'm just buying some more copies. I'm planning on leading a small group through this book. Uh, if you're interested uh, in being a part of that study, let me know. But um, they've started these talks once a month, and it's called raceinthechurch.com. You can go there. And there was one yesterday, and Dr. Carl Ellis spoke, and, and he kind of said something that was kind of a light bulb for me that helped me. And he's been studying this issue of uh, uh, race uh, and racial um, problems and racial reconciliation for years. But he says we talk right past each other. So when a white person thinks of, uh, you know, you're calling me a racist, you're saying I'm racist, he says his, his definition of a racist is ontological. And ontological has to do with being. Okay, you are a being greater than an ant, and God is a being greater than you. And so when you think of ontological racism, you think, you're saying, I am saying that the black man is an inferior race, and that I was created in the image of God of greater superiority than some other race. And that's how, when a white person thinks of racism, that's how he tends to think, is ontologically. And the reality is, okay, so... What Carl Ellis is saying is America has moved on from that. There's very, very few people that actually think that way. Look at the White House. The man was elected twice, President Obama, and he's African-American. So if we really were still this racist as a culture, we wouldn't have elected him twice. So, but when you ask an African-American person what, when, when he thinks of racism, they don't think in terms of ontological, but more in terms of cultural and institutional racism. And so his example that he gives to think about is Freddie Gray. So when you think about Freddie Gray and you ask a white person, was that racism? A white person will typically say no. Three of the officers were African-American. How can it be racism? But when you ask an African-American person, was it racism? They say yes. There was a cultural racism. And the cultural racism is between what Carl Ellis defines as achievers and non-achievers, and there's this cultural clash going on. I mention it just so that we can start to think about different categories, so we can deeply listen and love one another deeply. When we hear from one another, let's define our categories and understand where each other's coming from, instead of assuming that you're, you're saying I'm racist, and wh what do you mean? And let's go through and really talk about this. I think another thing that's difficult is, and I would encourage you to go to raceinthechurch.com, listen to John Piper's message followed by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller talks about how the dominant culture has a hard time uh, understanding, um, how does he put it? Um, we have communal blind spots that we have a hard time seeing because our, of a rosy history. So for example, when we, I think a lot of people in our church are like, why are we talking about this? And yet when I preach this in Fairmont, man, the, the, the African-American church couldn't be happier. It was the most well-received message I've ever preached in my life. They were so thankful, finally, we're talking about this. Um, Here's the thing, when, we, when we, we say, why are we talking about this? I mean, that was 1925. 
I didn't do that. I didn't live in that culture. I'm not guilty of that. Well, here's the thing. You may not be guilty of that. I agree. However, when we talk to our brothers and sisters, we have to recognize that they have parents and they have grandparents and they have grown up with a very painful history. And so when they're looking at us and perceiving our dominant culture, they have to overcome a history that goes back to things in 1950 that were terrible. And there's still things that are still working its way out as there's still layers of this that has to be worked out of the system. And what ultimately has to work it out is the church has got to be the headlights instead of being the taillights. And the white evangelical church does not have a rosy history. And we're going to look at some more of that next week as we look at some of the things and specifically of what the PCA is condemning and repenting of. And we're going to have a corporate prayer of repentance next week just to let you know where we're going. And I know some of you may not like that. I want you to wrestle this week with the three nines. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9, because those are the three corporate prayers of the Bible. And notice how they're confessing sins of hundreds of years ago and always saying we, and it's the most righteous person that's confessing their sins. We do have a corporate responsibility, and we need to be lead repenters because the white church has to repent and the black church needs to forgive, but they're not going to forgive until we repent and go to them and start loving them and acknowledging there's some really nasty stuff that happened, and we are so sorry for what has happened. And what I want us to see from the Bible this morning is that this is going on huge in the, in the Bible, the Gentile and race issues that went on between Gentiles and Jews was massive. And the Apostle Paul, if you look at his heart and how he lived his life and what was important to him, he couldn't yet go to Rome. He couldn't take the gospel to the unreached people groups. Not yet because I got to deliver this love offering because I so care to see the Jews and the Gentiles come together and the Gentiles who've been given birth because of the Jews and the gospel being entrusted to them. And now they're in a hardship and they have a famine and we are going to collect money from these Gentile churches as a love gift to take to them because ultimately we want to emphasize our oneness in Christ. It was a big deal to Paul. It's what he lost his life for. He's going to Jerusalem and they tell him, don't go. You're going to be in big trouble. These Jews, they hate you because you've been taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And he said, I'm going. And he goes there. And what happens? He's accused in Acts 21 of bringing a Gentile Trophimus into the temple, which was a big no-no, which led to his arrest. And it was going to be a riot. They were going to kill him right there. He's arrested. He's taken to Felix. From there, he goes to Rome. And there, Fox Book of Martyrs says he gave neck to the sword. This was a big deal to Paul. So it's appropriate that we talk about it. And my two questions this morning are, are we reading the Bible communally and are we reading it um, culturally? First of all, are we reading the Bible communally? This is kind of uh, going back to the beginning of the epistle of, of Ephesians. We, I think we tend to think so individualistically when we read the Bible. So here's what I mean by this. The, the epistle begins, to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, plural. There's over 50 yous in the book of Ephesians. They're all plural. 
So whenever you see a you in the Bible, do you think, oh, that's individualist, that's me, me and Jesus, that's all that matters. So it doesn't matter if I'm in a small group, doesn't matter if I don't do anything else besides come to church every once in a while. No, no, the Bible is written for community, for the body of Christ, it's always plural. So this is how we, I think we tend to look at a passage like Ephesians 1, 2 to 7. We look at it and we say, grace to, to you, singular, and peace from God, my Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose me in him before the foundation of the world, that I should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined me to adoption to himself as sons, and so on. You see, we, I think we tend to, we instantly, because we're American and individualistic culture, we tend to read the Bible individualistically. And I'm trying to launch us out of that to get the picture of what Paul has in mind of the church. And if we can get the picture in our minds and start to live for the picture, because at the end of chapter one, Paul paints a picture of the church as described as the body. The church is a body of which Christ is the head. At the end of chapter two, Paul has a new metaphor for the church. It's now a physical temple of which Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation and in him the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So we have a physical body, a physical temple. They're metaphors describing the church. And so the idea is that stones, limbs, ligaments, sinews, tendons, they don't have any purpose by themselves. Their purpose is to together make a temple, together make a body, together they make the church. So at the end of chapter three, Paul reminds us we're a family and he prays for glory in the church. Now, we should pray for glory in our personal life, but Paul's praying here, not just be glorified in me, but be glorified in the church. The only time Paul wants us to think individualistically in this epistle is in 4.7, where he says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so the point of us individually being given a spiritual gift is there's a reason. From whom the whole body, this is verse 16, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying itself in love. So the individual parts cause the body to grow in love together. I'm going somewhere with this, so just stick with me because we have to get the Ephesians groundwork first. So chapter four ends with this exhortation that we're to forgive each other now as God and Christ has forgiven us. And then in chapter five, we have a new word picture, a new metaphor, and it's that we're the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And we really don't understand what marriage is until we understand the point of the church. And then chapter six, Paul's asking for prayer that he would boldly make known the mystery of the gospel. I think we tend to read that, pray for me that I'll proclaim the gospel. No, no, he's asking to make prayer to make known the mystery of the gospel. 
So the mystery of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. That's the mystery. So follow Paul's thinking. He's describing a physical body, physical temple, bride of Christ. These are the metaphors. Do they describe a local church or a universal church or both? That's an important question. Is he saying that Jews and Gentiles are one and reconciled in the big picture of heaven, the universal church, but locally they can just continue their lives as a divided, fractured body of Jewish Christians where you worship in your own local body with your people, and you Gentiles, you worship in your local body with your people, and forget about all the metaphors because they really don't mean anything until we get to heaven. Is that what Paul is saying? Is that what Paul was giving his life for? Is that what Jesus gave his life for? You see, Paul is saying the local church is to reflect the universal church, and you can't separate the two. Jews and Gentiles are to worship together, together in the same body of local believers. Is this best magnifies and declares the manifold wisdom of God so that the heavenly realms are hearing the gospel. This is 310 in Ephesians. The wisdom of God is being, the manifold wisdom of God is declared best through diversity of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people in a local context and in the universal context, obviously in heaven. So if we're thinking biblically and applying this to our culture, it's not real hard to figure out where I'm going with this. There shouldn't be a white church or a black church unless the local culture doesn't have any ethnicity to dictate otherwise. And we are becoming more and more diverse as a culture. So we should be wrestling, grieving, praying as a church that we would become more diverse and that we would be building bridges every way possible to grow in this way because this was what best declares the manifold wisdom of God in the local church together. So that leads to the second point. Are we reading the Bible culturally? I think it's easy to forget there's such a big problem here between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Samaritans. It wasn't a small problem. I mean, when Jesus preached his first sermon in Luke 4 and he reminded the audience of God's love for Gentiles, for the other nations, and then when God's prophets of old were rejected by the Jews, he sent them to the Gentiles. And Jesus gives two examples when he says under Elijah's ministry, there were many widows but none of them was Elijah sent to except to the widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon, a Gentile region. And under Elisha's ministry, there were many lepers, but none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. How do you think that sermon went over? Well, it went over so well that they took Jesus and they took him to the top of the hill and we're going to throw him over the cliff. That's how Jesus' first sermon went in the temple. They didn't want to hear it, but he walked right through them. Red Sea, New Testament. Well, we are told in Galatians 2 that it says, yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, are we reading the Bible culturally? What is Paul saying? 
He's saying poor Titus had people spying on him in the outhouse, in the river, changing his clothes. The poor guy was under investigation and he failed and was spotted to not be circumcised. You say, that's crazy. It was crazy. Paul has to write, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves in chapter five because this was a cultural problem. Paul is so angry that there's this false gospel that's got to look Jewish, feel Jewish, taste Jewish. This cultural elitism is a racism that was despising other cultures and forcing them, forcing them to conform to your culture. And a few verses later in Galatians 2, we see that, that Peter and Barnabas, or Pete and Barney, were enjoying some barbecue, some ham sandwiches with their, with their homies from the hood. That's Tony Evans' language. And he says, certain men from James came and it says they drew back and they separated themselves fearing the circumcision party. So P Paul rebuked Peter for not right walking with the truth of the gospel. He's not living out the truth and he's choosing one race and saying this is superior to another and everybody else has got to conform to it. And Paul rebuked Peter to his face. So now back to Ephesians. You see, Paul says, you were called uncircumcision by the Jews. This was a racist slur. It was a term of derision to the Jews. The Gentiles were dogs. And yet it was a two-way street. In Acts 20, 16, 20, the Philippian slave girl denounced these Jewish troublemakers, Paul and Silas, and she said, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. And that's what led to Paul and or Paul and Silas being beaten with rods. These two groups of people, they hated one another, were culturally at odds. And Paul is proclaiming the mystery of the gospel that this problem has now been solved. So what has happened? Well, Paul is telling us here, remember. First of all, that's the first imperative in the whole book of Ephesians. Remember where you've come from. You were once far off. You were these Gentiles. You were a derision to the Jews. God's plan to work through the Jews to reach you. The Jewish people, they were to be the light of the world. They were to be the light to the nations. And it was ended up being the light of one. One Jew did it. His name was Jesus. The rest of them failed. And so Jesus ends up be, you know, fulfilling that, those covenant promises, but, but where there was failure, God is saying, look what God did to bring these two together. He's saying, you were without Christ. You were strangers, you were aliens, you had no hope without God. You were godless, you were hopeless, you were separated and alienated. And now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off and you who are near, You've both been brought together by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. That's both a vertical peace, but it's also a horizontal peace who's made them both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. I'll explain that in a minute. He abolished in his flesh this hatred that existed between them and is creating one new man from the two. There's a new humanity being formed. It's called the church. And, may, and now God is making peace and he's reconciled them to God in one body through the cross. And so 
I titled this sermon Together because, and I'm preaching from the New King James, which I never do, but I felt like they did the best job with the translation here because there's a Greek preposition soon, which can either be translated together or with, and I think it's better translated together. And so follow this little soon preposition. So at the beginning of the epistle in chapter one, verse 10, Paul is declaring the gospel and he says, that it was his purpose that in the dispensation of the fullness of times that he might gather together, together, uh, together in, in one, all things in Christ, both of which are in heaven and which are in earth. So his purpose is to bring us together. Well, then you look over in chapter two, verse five. And he says, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, and he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together, or as the other translations say, with, but I think together is a better uh, rendering of that Greek. We've been made alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and now we've been raised together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. And so then you go to the end of the chapter, chapter two, and now we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens, and and we are now in him, the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in which you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God. You, You getting the idea? And so then in chapter four, when he's talking about this one new man that he's brought together, he says that the purpose now of all these various parts is that we would grow up together We would grow up in all things into him who's the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every part supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so, as Tony Evans would say, he's got a great message on John chapter 4, I recommend it to you. He says it's technically incorrect. Technically, to call yourself a black Christian or a white Christian or Hispanic Christian because then you make your color or your culture an adjective. It's the job of an adjective to modify a noun. So if you put Christianity in the noun position and your color and culture in the adjectivable position, you have to keep shaping the noun so that it looks like the adjective that describes it. So if your color or culture stays in the adjectivable position, you got to keep shaping Christianity to look black or to look white or to look red or to look yellow because that's the adjectival position you've given it. Your Christianity must always be in the adjectival position. Your color and culture must always be in the noun position so that if anything must be adjusted, it's the noun of your humanity and not the adjective of your faith. You and I are to define our humanity in terms of our faith and not our faith in terms of our humanity. You have to go and listen to Tony Evans to get the better. He does it much better. You see, what Paul is saying is the walls are now broken down because of what Christ has done. You see, the Jewish temple is what he's referring to. The temple was surrounded by courts. There was an innermost court. It was called the court of the priest. And then only male members of the priestly tribe of Levi could could enter that court. And then there was the court of Israel, and it could only be entered by any male Jew. And then there was the court of the women, which any Jew could could enter. And, And then beyond that, These are all on the same level, but then there was this monumental division in the next court. You'd have to go down five steps, a five-foot barricade, went around the temple enclosure, and then down 14 more steps, descended to the court of the Gentiles. 
And there was a sign on the barricade that separated Jews from Gentiles in the temple courts, and it said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. This is not trespassers will be prosecuted. This is trespassers will be executed, okay? That's the wall that he's saying has come down. You see, when Jesus died, what, what, what the, the temple veil was torn in two. We have direct access, and there's no longer need for this temple. And he's saying, that's come down. The cross which slew Jesus slew also the hostility between man and God. His death was the death of that animosity. And so the cross is God's answer to racial discrimination, to segregation, to apartheid, to bigotry, to anti-Semitism. It's the cross. It's Ephesians 3, 6, the mystery that the nations, the Gentiles, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are all saved the same way through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So there was a baptismal creed. If you wanted to join the church, this was the creed. Here was the baptismal creed. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You see, this wasn't just pious, flowery language of platitudes like a graduation speech, rather just the opposite. It was rich in meaning because the creed was reactionary. It was reacting to this. There was going way back. Socrates and Thales are both attributed with saying that they are thankful that I was born a human being and not a beast, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. And the Jewish Talbot was even more bigoted. It said a person must recite these blessings, three blessings every day. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave or a woman. So in becoming a Christian, if you wanna join this ragtag bunch of people, if you wanna join them, you have to renounce all bigotry, all chauvinism, all racism, and all cultural elitism. You're a new culture, you're one man, and we're one body together, one temple together, the bride of Christ together, raised with Christ together, growing up into this head together, and there's no Greek nor, nor Jew. Ethically, all barriers are gone. There's neither slave nor free, all economic barriers. There's not rich or poor, and neither male nor female. There's no chauvinism here. We are one in Christ Jesus. What the apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, he says from now on, he says, the love of Christ compels us, controls us, and from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we measured him up and we said he, was not, he did not fit the categories that we liked, but we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's the new mindset. You're a new creation, a new person, and now we regard no one according to the flesh. And so when you think about what the Bible is saying, when it says like in Romans 15, which we'll end with with our benediction today, and, and we says, receive one another as Christ has received you, you gotta read that culturally. You see, the whole issue with some can eat meat and some can't, and some can drink wine, and some can't, and some have these food dietary laws, and some don't, because some are Jews, and some have grown up with these, these laws, and some are not. 
And it was a cultural problem. And he's saying, receive one another. You of different cultures. Welcome one another as Christ has received you. So how does this apply to us? Well, we, there was this huge blind spot that we're just trying to talk about, the pink elephant. I had a professor that I didn't realize was, said this. But I went to Greenville Seminary for a year and a half before I transferred to RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. To my understanding, Greenville Seminary has never recanted or repented of what I'm reading. They still stand behind Morton Smith and his comments here. And Morton Smith has never recanted this. But he said this in 1964, he says, some thoughts by a Southern white Christian, the racial problem facing America. He says, as a matter of practical consideration in a culture that has been sharply segregated for so long, it seems the point of wisdom to keep a segregated pattern in the sanctuary when there's joint worship. The fact is that most Southern white congregations would be willing to have Negroes attend if they were coming for true worship and would be willing to sit together. This has been the traditional pattern in the South, and it could be continued if it were not for the pressure groups seeking to integrate churches. Most Christians throughout the rest of the nation of the world are shocked to hear that Negroes are being turned away from white churches in the South. The ground for this is the assumption that the reason for the coming of the Negro to the church today is not to worship, but rather to integrate and prove a point. That this is the case is shown by the fact that when offered segregated seating in the church, the Negroes refuse it. They insist they should be allowed to enter and sit where they please. And Morton Smith says, if they were truly interested in worship, it would seem that they would be willing to sit in any section provided for them. It's hard to imagine Jesus exhibiting the spirit of the modern integrationist on this point. The fact is that Jesus taught a spirit of humility. He taught one should take a lowest seat at a feast, and then if invited up to a higher, how much better than insisting on a higher and having to be sent to a lower? Do you see what he's saying? We, the white people, are the high place, and the black man should know his place, that it's the low seat, and he should exhibit a spirit of humility while himself is blazing with pride. That's why I get upset about this. You wonder why I'm passionate about this. This was my professor. This is what I sat under. I didn't know this. And it still has not been repented of and recanted, and they're still defending him. This is appalling. Not exactly together, is it? Is that declaring the manifold wisdom of God? It's sad. You see... When we do one of those big puzzles, which I never do, you ever make one of those big puzzles? Anybody like puzzles? To me, they just take way too long. And I can never get beyond the trim. <laughs> I could do the, the, once those are done, I'm, I'm, I'm all done. But when you do one of those big puzzles, the way that you do it is you constantly have to have the picture that you're constantly looking at, and then you build the puzzle. And you're constantly looking and saying, okay, that should go here. We, as the church, Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And so we have the picture already of what the church should look like. Here's the picture. They sang a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God 
by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So there's the picture. It's all, every tribe, tongue, nation and people coming together. And so as we're building the church here, making the puzzle, we have to say, boy, we sure do need it to look like that. We should be praying and striving and longing for that because Martin Luther King Jr. said in the early 60s, he said, for so many years we've had to face the tragic fact that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stood to sing in Christ there is no east or west, we stood in the most segregated hour of Christian America. And I know the white church is thinking, well, come on in, you're welcome. You have to keep in mind the black church started because we wouldn't take them. That's how the black church started. No, no, you're over there. So until we start going to them and making bridges and pleading with them that we want you to come and we love you and we repent of what we have done of our fathers like Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, then we start to love them so that they can actually begin to forgive and healing can take place. We're either part of the problem or we're part of the solution. And it begins with prayer. We have to listen. We have to repent. We have to love. And that's for all of us. Where's the Lord applying this to you? Let's pray. Lord, give us a greater love for the church. May there be glory in the church. Lord, your church is broken in many ways. And we don't even see it so often. Oh, we forget the hurts that have been done. So Lord, help us to learn, to listen, to love. Work in each of our hearts. May you bring glory to yourself for your name's sake. Amen.